Hi, this is People of the Book on 101.9 Chai FM. Stephen Kravitz here. And we've got a full show for today, Friday, the 11th of August. All the books that we're going to discuss today have been posted on the Facebook page already. You go to People of the Book on 101.9 Chai FM. We'll go to Facebook. Type in people, search for people of the book on 101.9 Chai FM and you'll find all the books there. Um, and, uh, you'll be able to read a little bit about all of them. And if you are in the bookshops and you're looking for something to buy, use our Facebook page as your primary resource to decide what to read next. This week we had Women's Day on Wednesday and I'll Put aside a book for right for to, for this week, that I think fits in very well with Women's Day. It's called Inferior: How Science Got Women Wrong and the New Research That's Rewriting the Story. It's by Angela Saini, and it's a book looking to see why women are underrepresented in the sciences. So I thought it would make a very good tie-in with. Uh, with with the week of Women's Day. Angela Saini is Indian. She's born in India. And she wrote a book called Geek Nation. It was published in 2011 about the, the, the nature of RT in India that's made it similar to Israel, I suppose, in the sense that Israel's a startup nation. She wanted to call uh, India Geek Nation. And obviously she has a very, very strong scientific uh, background. And so here she's a journalist and a science writer, and she weaves together a fascinating and sorely necessary new science of women. She takes readers on a journey to uncover science's failure to understand women and to show how women's bodies and minds are finally being rediscovered. Now, what I want to do is she's got a very powerful introduction where she looks at the underrepresentation of women in the sciences. And this is what she says. After an elaborate discussion with lots of statistics, so here she says, in all the statistics on housework, pregnancy, childcare, gender bias, and harassment, we have some explanations for why there are so few women at the top of sci- in science and engineering. Rather than falling into Lawrence Summers' tantalizing trap of assuming the world looks this way because it's the natural order of things, take a step back. The reason for gender imbalance in the sciences is at least partly that women face a web of pressures throughout their lives which men often don't face. As bleak as the picture is in some places and some fields, the statistics also reveal exceptions. In several subjects, women outnumber men both at the university level and in the workplace. There tend to be more women than men studying the life sciences and psychology. And in some regions, women are much better represented in science overall, suggesting that culture is also at play. In Bolivia, women account for 63% of all scientific researchers. In Central Asia, they are almost half. In India, where my family originate from, 
Women make up a third of all students on engineering courses. In Iran, similarly, there are higher proportions of female scientists and engineers. If women were truly less capable of doing science than men, we wouldn't see these variations, proving again that the story is more complicated than it appears. As with all stories, it helps to go back to the start. Since its very earliest days, science has treated women as the intellectual inferiors of men. I'm reading from the introduction to Angela Saini's book, Inferior. It's published by Fourth Estate, and it's available in the shops. And she is making a strong argument for changes in the way science is structured, science degrees and engineering are structured in order to open up more to, to, to women. This is what she continues. She says, For nearly 300 years, the only permanent female presence at the Royal Society was a skeleton preserved in the Society's anatomical collection, writes Londa Schabinger, Professor of the History of Science at Stanford University and the author of The Mind Has No Sex, Women in the Origins of Modern Science. The Royal Society, founded in London in 1660, and one of the oldest scientific institutions in the world, failed to elect a woman to full membership until 1945. It took until the middle of the 20th century, too, for the prestigious scientific academies of Paris and Berlin to elect their first women members. These European academies were the birthplaces of modern science. Founded in the 16th and 17th centuries, they were forums for scientists to come together and share ideas. Later, they bestowed honours, including membership. These days, they also offer governments advice on science policy. Yet for the vast majority of their history, they excluded women as a matter of course. Things got worse before they got better. In the early days when science was a pastime for enthusiastic amateurs, women had some access to it at least, even if only by marrying wealthy scientists and having the chance to work with them in their own laboratories. But by the end of the 19th century, science had transformed into something more serious, with its own set of rules and official bodies. Women then found themselves almost completely pushed aside. In says Miami University historian Kimberly Hamlin. The sexism of science coincided with the professionalization of science. Women increasingly had less and less access. This discrimination didn't just happen high up in the scientific pecking order. It also it was unusual for women even to be allowed into universities or granted degrees until the 20th century. From their beginnings, European universities were, in principle, closed to women. They were designed to prepare men for careers in technology, law, government and medicine, which women were barred from entering. Doctors argued that the mental strains of higher education might divert energy away from a woman's reproductive system, harming her fertility. We're reading from the introduction to Angela Saini's book, Inferior, How Science Got Women Wrong, and the new research that's rewriting the story. We'll be back with... Bit more of a synopsis of her book straight after this ad break. From talk to music, from Johannesburg to Israel, from sport to business, this is 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book. We're looking at a book called Inferior by Angela Saini How Science Got Women Wrong. This is what she continues to say in her introduction, where she's going to tell us exactly 
what approach she takes in the book. Sex difference is today one of the hottest topics in scientific research. An article in the New York Times in 2013 stated that scientific journals had published 30,000 articles on sex differences since the turn of the millennium. Be it language, relationships, way of reasoning, parenting, physical and mental abilities, no stone was has gone unturned in the forensic search for gaps between women and men, and the published work seemed to reinforce the myth that those gaps are huge. In this book, I unpick some of these studies and interview the people behind them. Doing so has revealed a body of work that should make every one of us question, ask questions. Some scientists claim that women are on average worse than men at mathematics, spatial reasoning, and anything that requires understanding how systems such as cars and computers work. And that this is because women's brains are structurally different from men's brains. There are those who insist that men played the dominant part in human evolutionary history because they hunted animals, while women had apparently less challenging roles staying behind and caring for children. One person argues that humans have evolved to be as smart and creative as we are because of the actions of men. Another, that women experience the menopause because men don't find older women attractive. It can be hard to query the motives behind theories like these. Words that would sound deeply objectionable at a dinner party can seem remarkably plausible when they're falling from the mouths of someone in a lab coat. But we need to be sceptical. The study you read in the news, about in the newspaper telling you that men are better at reading maps or parking than women, for example, may be entirely contradicted by another study on a different population in which women happen to be better map readers or parkers. The beautiful brain scan is not the photograph, the, pho- the photograph of our thoughts that it claims to be. And in some branches of science, such as evolutionary psychology, theories may be little more than thin scraps of unreliable evidence strung into a narrative. If studies seem sexist, occasionally it's because they are. It's impossible to expect the deep prejudice that kept women out of science for centuries not to have affected the very blood and bones of science in the past and to this day. But this isn't the whole story. Having more women in science is changing how science is done. Questions are now being asked that were never asked before. Assumptions are being challenged. Old ideas are giving way to new ones. The distorted, often negative picture that was painted of women in the past has been powerfully tested in recent decades by researchers, many of them women, but men too, who have found it flawed. And this alternative portrait reveals humans in a completely different light. So for more on that completely different light that the new research into gender is leading us to in the scientific world, the book is Angela Saini's Inferior, and it's available now. Angela Saini is a science journalist. She presents science programs on BBC Radio 4 and the World Service. Her writing has appeared all over the world. She's a master's in, in engineering from Oxford University and a second master's in science and security from the Department of War Studies at King's College in London. Her family's from India. She wrote a book about Indian technology called Geek Nation. And now her new book is called Inferior. And we did it today because of uh, this week being the week of Women's Day. Now, the next book that I'm going to mention, hopefully I'll have an interview with the author, a short interview next week, is since we had a public holiday this week, Women's Day, it reminded me of a public holiday two months ago, which was on the 16th of June, Youth Day, and that 
public holiday is on the date of the Soweto uprisings. And a uh, professor of history at UNISA, Sifiso Muxulisi Ndlovu, has a book called The Soweto Uprisings, Counter Memories of June 1976. The book that I'm holding in my hands is an updated edition with new content, and I want to interview him, short interview next week. Uh, he was involved in the Soweto uprisings in June 1976, and this book is a very personal account of what happened, but also from a history professor. It's a book that challenges the established narrative. When the Soweto uprisings of June 1976 took place, Sifis Muxolisi Ndlovu, the author of this book, was a 14-year-old pupil at Fefeni Junior Secondary School. With his classmates, he was among the active participants in the protest action against the use of Afrikaans as a medium of instruction. Contrary to the generally accepted views, both that the, upri- that the uprisings were spontaneous and that there were bigger political players and student organizations behind the uprisings, in the Soweto uprisings, Ndlovu shows that this was not the case. Using newspaper articles, interviews with former fellows' pupils, and through his own personal account, the author provides readers with a counter-memory of the momentous events of that time. In this book, which is an updated version of the book first published in 1988, new material has been added, including an introduction to this new edition, as well as two new chapters analyzing the historiography of the uprisings, as well as reflecting on memory and commemoration as social, cultural, and historical projects. The book is called The Soweto Uprisings, Counter-Memories of June 1976, and it's by Professor Sfiso Ndlovu, who's at at UNISA University. So those are our two books with South African public holiday tie-ins, and they make the... The, the, our history or our social events that we're dealing with or the social issues that we're dealing with much more real and uh, that much more accessible to us as well. Now we're going to go on to um, a giveaway. We've got a giveaway. Um, so straight after this ad break, we'll give out all the details what you need to do to win a crime thriller. We'll be back straight after this ad break. The best part of your day. At the heart of your community. All the talk. All the music. All the news. Chai FM. And this is People of the Book on 101.9 Chai FM. The book that we're giving away right now, it's called What Remains of Me, and it's by A.L. Galen. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's one of the books in that very big burgeoning genre of books dark uh dark thrillers domestic thrillers and uh, al galen's got a lot of shout outs from some of the big names in thriller writing holland coburn megan abbotts they've all said how much they've enjoyed this book it was now this is what what remains of me is all about on june 28 1980 kelly michelle lunt shoots and kills oscar-nominated director john mcfadden at a party in his home and instantly becomes a media sensation. For years, speculation swirls over the 17-year-old's motives and what really happened that night. Convicted of the murder, she loses her youth and her freedom, but keeps her secrets to herself. 
30 years later and five years after her release from prison, the past has come back to haunt Kelly. Her father-in-law, movie legend Sterling Marshall, is found in a pool of blood in his home in the Hollywood Hills, dead from a shot to the head, just like his old friend John McFadden. Once again, Kelly is suspected of the high-profile murder, but this time she's got some unexpected allies who believe she's innocent of both killings and want to help her clear her name. But is she? So this is the book, What Remains of Me by A.L. Galen. To win, all you have to do is send us an SMS on 34519 with your name and the title of the book you're currently reading. And also you can WhatsApp us on 0621482374. That's 0621482374. If you've won uh, a prize on Chayef in the last three months, don't, in, don't enter. But all you have to do is tell us your name and the title of the book that you're currently reading. And then our officers will contact the winner with uh, their prize. Now, we're going to look at some fiction, and uh, I've had quite a few books that I've reviewed in the last so many months that were set in Russia, uh, a really beautiful book, um, was A Gentleman in Moscow, and that was came out last year, it's still available in the shops, it's a beautiful, beautiful novel set in Russia. Uh, another book that we looked at was The Patriots, and also that's uh, a much more serious, a much heavier read than than A Gentleman in Moscow. Also a very, very powerful multi-generation family saga between America and Russia. That's The Patriots by Sana Krasikov. And now I've got a book that's also set in Russia, but very, 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 very different genre. It's called The Bear and the Nightingale, and it's by Catherine Arden. And it's almost... Fan, uh, fairy tale Russia. It's long before the communists come in. It was generally the, the theme of the other two books that sit in Russia. And this one is much, much more fairy taleish. There's a dark magic in the woods. In a village at the end of the wilderness of northern Russia, where the winds blow cold and the snow falls many months of the year, a stranger with piercing blue eyes presents a new father with a gift. A precious jewel on a delicate chain, intended for his young daughter. Uncertain of its meaning, the father hides the gift away, and his daughter Vasya grows up a wild, willful girl to the chagrin of her family. But when mysterious forces threaten the happiness of their village, Vasya discovers that, armed only with the necklace, she may be the only one who can keep the darkness at bay. This is historical but fairy tale infused fiction from Russia, and it's a perfect book to read in cold winter nights. And what really does make this book jump out is the the the, the main character, Vasya Petrovna. She's the youngest child of a wealthy boyar in the north of Russia, 
and the heir to old magic. Her grandmother, her grandmother stepped out of a fairy tale into mar- stepped out of fairy tale into marriage with the prince, and her mother died to give birth to her, and the enchantment promised by her lineage. Sure enough, Vasya can see spirits, the creatures of the heath, the stable, lake, and the woods who populate the landscapes, as much as humans do. She's alone in this, and she keeps it a secret. Until her father remarries, then Vasya realizes her new stepmother can see the spirits as well, but is terrified of them, calls them demons and forbids Vasya any communion with them. But something is waking in the woods, more terrible, threatening and hungry than the winter king himself, and it's coming for Vasya and all she holds dear. And there's a great deal to love in this book. Arden, Catherine Arden, the author, she weaves her weaving of folklore and fairy tales together create a very, very strong evocation of feudal Russia that's both that's very, very beautiful. The climax of the book also leaves you quite breathless and it's it's a beautiful, beautiful Russian fairy tale, but set in a Russia that's far more feudal than it is modern. Now for Two books that I actually planned to review last week, but we didn't get to them. So we got them today. The first one is by Anita Shreve. It's called The Stars of Fire. Anita Shreve is a very, very famous authoress. Some of the books that he made into movies. Um, her first breakout novel was The Pilot's Wife. She's definitely a favorite of book clubs. And the stars of fire is, once again, classic, classic Anita Shreve. Her books are engrossing. They are quite literary, but they are still page page turners. She doesn't write to a formula. But if you could distill all her books down into a basic structure, there's trouble, desire, mixed with fortune, that's as for, that's as formulaic as you can as you can have. She consistently creates complex characters and plots, often drawn from historical records or from some obscure headline in a regional newspaper somewhere in America. She hands her characters a seemingly insurmountable problem or dire situation and tests them with the press of social mores, menacing evil, buried secrets or some catastrophe, sometimes all of the above. But the prose is always elegant and the story is always very, very well told. In her new novel, we go to the American province of Maine for a real-life disaster that happened in 1947 when a severe drought caused a series of massive fires that burned out of control for 10 days. In Arcadia National Park, 10,000 acres of forest went up in flames, along with most of the mansions on Bar Harbor's Millionaire's Row. Fishermen and coast guards rescued thousands of people from the shoreline because the fire literally came to the sea, right to the beach. Firefighters and evacuees were trapped behind a burning wall that cut through Kennebunkport. Sixteen people were killed and thousands were left homeless in that fire. In The Stars Are Fire, Anita Shreve starts her story when the Fire, well, she starts when the fire arrives in her novel. Her main 
character Grace Holland and her neighbors head for the water's edge. 24 years old, a mother of two young children and pregnant with a third, Grace holds her children in the frigid sea overnight as the flames send smoke and burning debris onto the beach. In the midst of crisis, she finds a strength she didn't know that she had, but her losses are devastating. She faces a very precarious future. The scenes of the disaster of the townspeople trying to save what they can are beautifully written, but there's a tension, and that is so much, it's so immediate, it's it's very, very, so it's very realistic. But Shreve is more interested in the tragedy's aftermath, when Grace is challenged. Before the fire, in many ways, she thinks her family is perfect, two beautiful children, a husband who works hard at his job and doesn't resist chores at home. She's thankful for the seaside bungalow that her family lives in and for their health. She asks for little and doesn't complain. Still, she fears hers will be a restricted life, that she will likely never have a job, never even learn to drive a car. She's bravely resigned to days spent watching the fog roll in off the sea as her children grow up and new children continue to arrive. This is an existence where a new washing machine is a luxury. Dollars have to be stretched to make the the budget balance. But like many of uh, Anita Shreve's protagonists, Grace is filled with a longing. She has untapped potential and a desire for romance, but doesn't have education or income to produce any of her dreams. Her friend Rosie seems to have a happier marriage and a brighter future one that Grace envies as she hangs out the washing and steals away for five minutes' peace with a cigarette on the beach. She tries to ignore the niggling sense of something that is wrong. When the fire breaks out and destroys so much, they also the fire also leaves room for growth. Grace's life suddenly holds out the promise of a fresh start. The question of whether she will prevail or again be trapped keeps the reader rooting for her. And Shreve, once again, like all in all her other books, builds the suspense with small details, keeping you into the book, drawing you into the book. So this is um, The Stars of Fire by Anita Shreve. It's published by Little Brown. It is available in the shops. And Anita Shreve is a favorite of book clubs, slightly more literary than commercial fiction. But it's uh, it's a very, very, it's a good, good novel and uh, we do have winners for we do have a winner for what remains of me uh, the office will call um, will call our winner uh, see people are reading the Joy Luck Club by Amy Tan and also I'm Pilgrim I can tell you that if you are enjoying I'm Pilgrim uh, Terry Hayes has a new book that should be coming out um, for some reason He's under huge pressure to keep up that same momentum that he had with Iron Pilgrim. So the date for the publication of his new book called Locust keeps being delayed, but everybody in the publishing world is waiting for the new Terry Hayes to come out because, once again, it promises to be a book of great, great excitement. So if you haven't read Iron Pilgrim, I'd also, also suggest that it's a great, great, great book to read. Now, for uh, a book of non-fiction, this is called Weaponized Lies, and it's written by Daniel Leviton, and it's subtitled How to Think Critically 
in the post-truth era. We are told every day that there's fake news and there is, we live in the post, we're living in the post, um, the post-truth world and it becomes very difficult to know what to believe and what not to believe. And into this quagmire of the truth and obfuscations, we have a, an author who wants us to be able to negotiate the news and the world around us with greater skills. So Daniel Leverton, who is the author of The Organized Mind, and is also a professor in America, this is what he wants us to know. Uh, well, first of all, he is uh, Daniel. He's a doctor, Daniel Leverton. He has a PhD in psychology. He trained at Stanford University Medical School and the University of California in Berkeley. He's the author of number one bestseller, "This Is Your Brain" on music, which was published in nineteen languages. Also, the bestsellers "The World in Six Songs" and "The Organized Mind." Currently, he's dean of social sciences at Minerva Schools at KGR in San Francisco and a faculty member at the Center for Executive Education in the Haas School of Business at UC in Berkeley. I'm going to read the introduction to weaponized lies. This is what he says, thinking critically. I'm going to start by saying two things that will surely make some people very mad. First, the language we use has begun to obscure the relationship between facts and fantasy. Second, this is a dangerous byproduct of a lack of education in our country that has now affected an entire generation of citizens. These two facts have made lies proliferate in our culture to an unprecedented degree. It has made possible the weaponizing of lies so that they can all, they can all the more sneakily undermine our ability to make good decisions for ourselves and for our fellow citizens. What has happened to our language? The Oxford Dictionary's word of the year in 2016 was post-truth, which they define as an adjective relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. It was selected because its usage skyrocketed during that year. I believe we need to get back to using plain old truth again and fast. And we need to reject the idea that truth doesn't exist anymore. We are all being more than a bit too careful in how we refer to falsehoods, perhaps in an effort to avoid personal confrontations, an effort to just get along. We have started to use euphemisms to refer to things that are just plain quacker do crazy. The lie that the Washington, D.C. pizza shop Comet Ping Pong was running a sex slave operation spearheaded by Hillary Clinton, led Edgar M. Welch, 28 years of age, of Salisbury, North Carolina, to drive 350 miles from his home in, to Washington, D.C., and fire his semi-automatic weapon inside the pizzeria on Sunday, December the 4th, 2016, just days after post-truth became the word of the year. The New York Daily News called the lie a fringe theory. A theory, by the way, is not just an idea. It's an idea based on a careful evaluation of evidence. And not just any evidence, evidence that is relevant to the issue at hand, gathered in an unbiased and rigorous fashion. 
Other euphemisms for lies are counter-knowledge, half-truths, extreme views, alt-truth, conspiracy theories, and the more recent appellation, fake news. The phrase fake news sounds too playful, too much like a schoolchild faking illness to get out of a test. These euphemisms obscure the fact that the sex slave story is an out-and-out lie. The people who wrote it knew that it wasn't true. There are not two sides to a story when one side is a lie. Journalists and the rest of us must stop giving equal time to things that don't have a fact-based opposing side. Two sides of a story exist when evidence exists on both sides of a position. Then, reasonable people may disagree about how to weigh that evidence and what conclusion to form from it. Everyone, of course, is entitled to their own opinions, but they are not entitled to their own facts. Lies are an absence of facts and, in many cases, a direct contradiction of them. Truth matters. A post-truth era is an era of willful irrationality, reversing all the great advances humankind has made. Maybe journalists don't want to call fake news what it is, a lie, because they don't want to offend the liars. But I say offend them, call them on the carpet. I'm reading from the introduction to Daniel Leviton's weaponized lies, How to Think Critically in the Post-Truth Era. Perhaps a better formulation is, what has been happening to our educational system and institutions in the run-up to this post-truth era? The number of books students read on average declines steadily every single year after second grade. Already 15 years ago, the U.S. Department of Education found that more than one in five adult Americans are not even able to locate information in text or make low-level inferences using printed materials. We have apparently failed to teach our children what constitutes evidence and how to evaluate it. This is worthy of our outrage. Edgar Welch, the Comet Ping-Pong shooter, told authorities that he was investigating the conspiracy theory after reading about it online. Our information infrastructure is powerful. It can do good or it can do harm, and each of us needs to know how to separate the two. Welch may have thought in one way or another that he was investigating, but there is no evidence that any true investigating took place. It appears that this ignorant citizen does not know what it is to compile and evaluate evidence. In this case, one might look for a link between Hillary Clinton and the restaurant, behaviours of Clinton that would suggest an interest in running a prostitution ring or even a motive for why she might benefit from such a thing. Certainly the motive could not have been financial given the recent kerfuffle over her speaking fees. He might have observed whether there were child prostitutes and their customers coming in and out of the facility. Or lacking the mentality and education to conduct one's own investigation, one could rely on professionals by reading what trained investigative journalists have to say about the story. The fact that no dedicated professional journalist gives this any credence should tell you a lot. I understand that there are people who think that journalists are corrupt and co-opted by the government. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics reports that there are 45,790 reporters and correspondents. The American Society of News Editors, an independent trade group, estimates there are 32,900 reporters working for nearly 1,400 daily newspapers in the United States. Some journalists may be corrupt, but with this many of them, it's unlikely that they all are. Looking at a book called Weaponized Lies, How to Think Critically in the Post-Truth Era. It's a passion call by Daniel Leviton. 
to be objective in the way that you look at the world and he then goes on to give the reader skills, looks at statistics, plausibility, how to read graphs, how drinks with how numbers are reported. He's giving us the ability to encounter the world around us with a degree of skepticism and the ability to cut through the lies and make sense of the news that we can get beyond the fake news or the post-truth world in which we are supposedly living. We'll be back with more books straight after this ad break. Stay relevant and up-to-date. This is 101.9 High FM. We're looking at a few more books in the, the last 15, 20 minutes of the show. And uh, we... Uh, We've got a book called, it's called Let Go My Hand. It's by Edward Dox, published by Picador. Edward Dox was listed for the Man Booker Prize a few years ago. And his books have, for the Devil's Garden, his books have been extremely well received critically. Uh, on uh, on uh, one of his previous books, The Economist said, Laugh, Allowed Dialogue, Strong Characterization. Uh, Camilla Shamsia said, We know that what we want most from a novel are stories into which we can sink our teeth and our hearts. And this is exactly what he gives us. The book, Let Go My Hand, is available already in the shops. And it's a very, very, very contemporary 21st century moral issue thrown in with a family road trip. A brief overview of the story, Louis Lasker loves his family dearly, apart from when he doesn't. There's a lot of history. His father's marriages, his mother's death, one brother in exile, another in denial. Everything said, everything unsaid. And now his father, the best of men, the worst of men, has taken a decision that will affect them all and has asked his three sons to join him on one final journey across Europe. But Louis is far from sure that this trip is a good idea. His older half-brother, brothers, are wonderful, terrible, troublesome people, and they're as suspicious as they are supportive, because the truth is they've never forgiven their father for the damaging secrets and corrosive lies of his past. So how much does Louis love his dad? Is it enough to death? Or can this flawed family's bonds prove powerful enough to keep a dying man alive. Let go my hand is deeply philosophical at times, considering the question of whether we should be allowed to make profound decisions about our lives, even if those choices hurt the ones we love, while at the same time it's an incredibly touching story of the tender and indestructible bonds that exist between a father and his three sons. What is happening in this book is that the father is going to Zurich. The final destination is a suicide-assisted clinic. And this is the road trip that the family takes. And he wants his three sons to accompany him uh, while they travel to, to, to Switzerland. So obviously you have the morality the 21st century question of the morality of assisted suicide, people having the right to decide. You also have all the layers and layers of family tension where 
a good but flawed father who's had a few marriages and has got three children. And it's not all one nuclear family are together and all the rivalries and the tensions are there. But can you put that aside while you drive your father to a suicide facility? This is the type of things that Edward Dox is bringing to the, to, to his novel. Uh, as we said, Louis Lasker is 25 years old, a little lost. He's got a poet's soul and thrown into the heart of a very emotionally turbulent few days when he drives his irritating, irascible, erudite, but completely beloved father from Dover via ferry and across Europe to the Dignitas Clinic in Switzerland, which is the place that his father has chosen to end his life following a diagnosis of motor neuron disease. And just that idea, should people even have that right? I know this is Chai FM, and the Jewish answer is no. The Torah answer is no. Society is debating this, and it's it's interesting to have a philosophical investigation. It's in the pages of a novel on this idea of euthanasia. The novel is ostensibly just about about family, but it's really concerned with friendships between men. And uh, if you enjoy the Nicholas Butler books, I've reviewed The Hearts of Men and uh, also Shotgun Love Songs on this radio station. So Edward Docks really gets back to that male-male setting, looking at the friendships and the bonds between men. In the early sections, Lou and his father travel alone, but they're joined by Ralph, Lou's older half-brother, and then by Jack, Ralph's twin. These are not men who bond over football, nor do they try to upstage each other with details of their successes. Instead, their conversation is varied and unpredictable, but mostly concerned about how we live our lives. And we travel with them across Europe, and we experience them as a family. Although there are not many, there are almost no women in the book, we learn a little about Louis' mother through memories. She also was a poet, but she would have liked to have written not just poetry. And we see how he resolves his relationship with his father in the light of all of this and all the overlays of the first marriage, his mother's, the second marriage and all these, you know, the three children, twins, the sibling, Dynamic, and then the older half-brother, all comes together. It's called Let Go My Hand. Just to tell you a little bit about the author, Edward Docks is, as I said, a um, very well-published author in, uh, in, 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 the, in England. He's quite young, born in 1972, and he, reg- he contributes regularly to many of the leading British and American newspapers. He was long-listed for, uh, he was listed, he was long-listed for the Man Booker Prize, and his books have, as I said, been very, very well received critically by, by everybody who, 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 you know, all the newspapers in Britain who review literary fiction. We'll be back with two more books straight after this ad break. A frequency like no other. 101.9 High FM. And here we're back on High FM. People of the book. And we have 
two more books in the remaining time that we've got. The first one is All That's Left to Tell by Daniel Lowe. It's published by Picador. And it's, 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 it's sort of war book set in, not quite war, but in Pakistan. It's a hostage book, but it also has really strong overtones of 101, 1001 Arabian Nights. Every night, Mark Laurent, an American executive working in Pakistan who's been taken as a hostage, is bound and blindfolded. And every night, a woman he knows only as Josephine comes to visit him. At first, her questions are mercenary. Who will pay for you, your release? But then, when Mark can offer no names, she asks him something even harder to answer. Why didn't you go home for your daughter's funeral? And so begins a strange yet comforting nightly ritual. Josephine tells Mark stories about what might have happened to had Claire not been murdered. In turn, Mark begins to tell his own, in which his daughter is still alive. Soon neither Mark nor Josephine are sure which stories are true and which are imagined, or even if it matters. And as they unfold, father and daughter start to find their way toward understanding each other once again. This is called All That's Left to Tell. And um, it's a, it's, it's an interesting story of stories within stories. It's a debut novel that interwines, as I said, stories within stories so cleverly that in the end, both the characters and the reader start to wonder which of the narratives are real and which are imagined. It's quite labyrinthine, and it's uh, it's a very powerful story about how we tell stories to survive. Can you imagine a person's being held a hostage, but all of a sudden there's this power of the narrative that somehow lifts him out of pure, uh, pure, pure jail and gives him an opportunity to connect to a family that is no longer there for him. Then the last book that we got for today is by Joel Dicker. He's actually a Swiss wunderkind. He's a literary star in in Europe. And this book is the second book that is written that's been translated into English. The first was called The Truth About the Harry Quibert Affair. That became an international bestseller. This book is a sort of continuation, but it's also a standalone on that. It's called The Baltimore Boys. And it continues the continues with the characters from the his first book, The Truth About the Harry Quibbert Affair. But once again, it's also very, very literary and it's also very much playful. He, the author, Joel Dicker, plays with you as the reader. This is his second major book. And in the book, someone's writing a book and they also got a bit of writer's block. What I want to do for this, Joel Dicker lives in Switzerland, but his books are set in America. And in, in, in an interview, he was asked a number of questions. So the Swiss writer it was asked um, a number of questions. I'm going to read the, uh, the answers that he gives just to um, give a sense of the type of book that you can expect. Just to give a bit of the Joel Dicker, 31, is the author of Two Twisting American Mysteries, the 2012 international hit, The Truth About the Harry Quibert Affair, which sold 2 million copies. His new book is called The Baltimore Boys. 
Dick is Swiss, he writes in French, and he lives and works in Geneva. His suspenseful plots are set in America, where they revolve around the privileged life of an American writer called Marcus Goldman, who, like Dicker, must write a follow-up to his bestseller that gave him fame and fortune. He was asked, what is it that draws, what is the draw of America for you? So he answered, it has a specific resonance of Summers and of dreams. For 20 years in a row, I spent all my vacations in Maine at my uncle's home on the ocean. And summer is a special time for anyone. It's quiet and you have nothing to worry about. School seems a lifetime off. And I was free to dream and figure out what I would like to be. So for me, America is a land of dreams. Not the American dream, though. When I'm writing in Geneva, going to America in my mind helps me break away again. Are you a natural storyteller who entertains your friends? So Joel Dicker answers, My friends tend to suggest I keep it short, otherwise I can be never-ending. On paper I'm more efficient. Print allows me to think about what matters, especially when there is a lot of going backwards and forwards. Then he's asked, An elderly character in The Baltimore Boys, Leo, struggles to start a second career as a novelist. Is writing harder than people think? And we'll finish off with this. Strangers often come up and tell me they have an amazing plot in mind. Leah refers to all that. They ask me how to write it, and I say they have to find their own way. They tell me they've worked on a book for years and yet have only ten pages. If they are so stuck, they are... They are coming to me for help. Maybe it's not meant to be. On the other hand, it is nice that people want to express themselves through books. It's a lot better than Facebook. So the Baltimore Boys is about the day, the 24th of November, 2004. The day tragedy struck and ended the brotherhood of the Baltimore Boys. Uh, it's a literary thriller, but it's very, very cleverly structured with also stories within stories. And uh, once again, if a person has read the truth about the Harry Quibbert affair, this will be a fantastic follow-up of that. Everything that we've mentioned today has been posted on our Facebook page. And uh, if you just go to Facebook, you search for people of the book on 101.9 High FM, you'll find there. Next week, I will hopefully have Sufi Sundlovu, the history professor, in to talk a little about the Soweto uprisings. And also, I'm going to be interviewing the author of a book about a shark called Nicole. And the shark traveled 22,000 miles in nine months. This was a few years ago. And we'll be looking at sharks on the book show next week. Until then, good Shabbos and keep reading.